Good morning. I'd like to add my welcome. My name is Fritz Games. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, please turn, as I said, to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to just get it. We're not, not going there. Um, some of you may have seen this uh, on Jimmy Kimmel. Somehow I caught it. I don't stay up that late, but it was on earlier for some reason. But it's what they call Dodge Basketball. Anybody seen this? So basically, you get out on a basketball court, and you stand at the free throw line, and you have 20 seconds to shoot as many in as you can, which would be hard for a lot of us who aren't that good at basketball. But the other thing is you've got about six or eight middle schoolers with dodgeball surrounding you. They've got racks and racks of dodgeball. And so while you're shooting, they are taking those balls and they're just throwing them at you. They're, they're pelting you and barraging you with those dodgeballs. So you might, you might, if you're lucky, make one or two. You should Google it. It's fun. But that is sort of getting at what we're going to try to do throughout the summer in this series on the Psalms. It's a little bit of a continuation of Revelation. I think one of the things that has stuck with Murray and I the most is this idea of living as, as a people under grace, knowing that God loves you, you are not under condemnation in a world that does not believe that. In a world that believes very differently about God. Even if they say they don't believe in God, they have a God that is condemning them. And that tension that that creates and the questions that that provokes... And today what we're going to see in Psalm 49 is what it looks like to live in a world that very much trusts in riches and all that riches promise to deliver. So let me read for us Psalm 49. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Verse 1, hear this all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear? In times of trouble, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names, 
Man and his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them people approve of their boast. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. Let's pray. God, again, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the first day of the week that You might realign not only our hearts, but our thinking, our minds, that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds this morning. Please do that for Your glory, for our good and the good of others. In Jesus' name. Amen. So every morning I start out my day with a contrast. And it is illustrated through my breakfast that I eat. I literally eat the same thing every morning. I cook scrambled eggs more like an omelet and I fold into them spinach, cheese, and pepperoni. You should try it if you haven't. But it is very spicy because I load it with every sort of salt and pepper that we've got. It's very spicy. But I also have yogurt. Cold, sweet, filled with blueberries, so I actually feel healthy. And a little granola. Do you see the contrast? Today and next week, we are going to see a contrast between two very different worldviews. Two very different outlooks, two very different futures, two different belief systems. And one goes like this, trust in riches and all that it promises, or trust in God and all that He promises. And if you wonder why we're doing this to start off this series, because as I was doing Revelation and Murray and I were doing it, I kept coming back to this psalm over and over going, this is part of the pressure and the tension of what it means to live in our particular moment in the U.S. This psalm and the next psalm, Psalm 73, get at some very difficult challenges that we have living in America. Because whether you admit it or not, 
we, every one of us, have a money problem. We have a riches problem, which is really a heart problem. Let me just throw a couple things out at you. In the U.S. alone, we have double the number of millionaires, and I know million isn't what it used to be, but it is sort of nice to think about, right? As people in the country of Sweden. We also have more people in debt than 42 other countries. There are 195 countries. That's a lot of debt. I was VRBOing a couple weeks ago looking for my wife and I, a nice place at the beach. And I was looking at all the different options. You can get the cheap sort of big old skyscraper, you and thousand of your best friends sharing a little piece of sand, right? And that's about 500 a month. And then you can get the nice plush house for thousands, right? And the thing was, when you clicked on that, it was like 93% of this is full. We will pay for these things. And look, what we're looking at this morning is we're either rich or we really long to be rich. You may say, well, not me. And I tell you what, I've been saying it all week, not me, right? But even when Murray was reading the treasures, I thought, just don't go into, don't go into my garage. Because that's where my treasures are, right? Jesus said more about money than he did faith and prayer combined. 11 of his 40 parables are about money. That's 25%. So we need to look at this. We need to deal with this. So I want us to see it in this contrast this morning. Because we too find ourselves running after the idea of riches and what they promise and we need the faith it takes to trust God and what he promises. So first of all, this morning, I want to just divide this under two points. The futility of riches and all that riches promise. Look at verses 1 through 4 in the psalm. 1 through 4 serve as a prelude. And basically what the prelude says is this. Everyone needs to hear this. Again, no one in this room or at home listening is off the hook. Hear this, all peoples, both, both those who are low, if you are at the bottom, or if you're at the top, if you have a lot of money, or if you don't. This is an inclusive message. There is no exception. It doesn't matter your net worth or what you want your net worth to be. He's saying this is wisdom for you. This is actually in the genre of psalms. This is a wisdom psalm uh, like Psalm 1. There's not really much praise here. Did you notice that? There's no breaking out in praise to God or even a lot of thanksgiving. It's just more for our instruction. 
much like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes are wisdom literature. And so it's a wisdom psalm. And you might expect, as he says, here's what I want you to listen to. Here's the wisdom. Here's the riddle that we're going to solve. You might expect in verse 5 for him to say, okay, you ready? Here's the nugget of truth I'm about to give you. Right? Or here's the infomercial. Or here's the great declaration. But that's not what he does. What does he do in verse 5? He asks a question. He says, why should I fear in times of trouble? And then everything else he says after that is about wealth and what it brings. Do you see the context? He's saying that when he looks around in his particular time and in the world he lives in and he looks in his own heart, he begins to see fear. And do you notice, Christians, you have permission to admit fear? You have permission to ask questions, as Murray alluded to early, earlier. But the question that he is asking is, why should I fear in times of trouble? I live in a world that is rich, where we are rich, or we just sort of long to be rich. In the First Timothy passage that Amy read, the desire to be rich. He says, that's the world that surrounds me. The, verse, or the word there in verse 5 for surrounding is the same word that sort of goes with Jacob. It means at your heels, to be overreaching, to, to persecute. He's saying he looks around and it's so intimidating, it's almost like a bully that's coming after him. Everywhere we turn... It's like standing on the free throw line trying to shoot a free throw and middle schoolers are hitting you with dodgeballs, right? Everywhere you look, this is the world in which he lives. Let's look more specifically at verse 5. He says, the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me. And in the context, it's, it's probably that he's being cheated financially. In our world, that might be that uh, someone sues you even though they don't have a right to, or there's just the opportunity, or someone is, is, does something wrong to you, cheats you in some way, that financially they get ahead and you fall behind. In verse 6, he talks about those who trust in their wealth and, and boast about it, right? Not just sort of doing it privately, but being, uh, uh, verse 12, the word is pompous, Right? In Psalm 73, we'll see people strutting around. That's the world he lives in. A world that is filled with wealth and people pursuing wealth and stepping on others or, or longing to be. In verse 16, there's some, there's some consequences that come. Listen, listen to what it says. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich when the glory of his house increases. In other words, things sort of go well for him. We'll see that again next week. But this is the world the psalmist lives in that is rich and wants to be rich. A world that 
trust in riches and the promises that it brings. And often what we see is that it delivers on those promises. And some of those uh, promises that are delivered on are in the, in the case of our peers, right? Those that we do life with. Look at verse 13. This is the path of those who have this foolish confidence. Yet, after them, people approve of their boast. In other words, somebody that does really well and keeps doing well and the glory of their house increases and everybody comes along and says, you're a great capitalist. You're really good with money. You're really good with businesses, whatever. And he gets approval, which sort of just increases it. In verse 18, he counts himself blessed. And then it says that he gets praise from other people. But the psalmist shows us something else. Look at verses 7 through 9. That is the world that he describes that he lives in. A world that desires to be rich or is rich. And yet he says it's futile. Look at verses 7 through 9. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Now at first glance when you're reading this, you might think, wait a minute. That, what's that got to do with somebody that just wants to be rich? What the psalmist is doing is he's saying, there is something going on theologically with this person. This person thinks the more that he can amass, the more that he can have, but not just things, but the approval and the respect and the status and the net worth that it brings, that somehow that's going to extend his life. Do you see that? He's, don't, don't jump to Jesus here. We'll get to that in a minute. But he's just saying, the more I buy, the more chance I have of living forever. And, and, and isn't that how it works? We just think the more, the more, the more. It gives us the, this idea of, of maybe immortality or permanence. In a sense, he's saying this man is trying to buy his way out of death. He's trying to avoid death. But look at verse 10. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and they leave their wealth to others. He's saying no one is going to pay enough to avoid death. No amount of wealth, no amount of status, no amount of stuff is going to secure eternal life. In fact, this person is going to perish just like every one of us and leave their stuff to others. And often we see how that doesn't go well. Then look at verses 11 and 12. He basically says this, it doesn't matter if you are so great that they name lands after you, or in our context, streets, buildings, right? 
uh, schools. It doesn't matter. Your VRBO reservation is actually a grave. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. In fact, he says in verse 12 that those who step on other people and cheat other people to get what they have, they rule over people for their good and their benefit, not other people's benefit, will be ruled over by those people. And then he adds that their form will be consumed in Sheol. Verse 14, like sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. Sheol was the place of the dead. It's a little ambiguous in the Bible, a little, a little hazy, uh, but one, one writer said it like this, it was the bunker of Satan. It was a place of darkness. It was a place of gloom. It's where you sort of, you sort of went after you died. And the idea is that, that, that those who consume will be consumed. Those who are just here to consume will be consumed, waste away, will be unmade, will be dispossessed, perish, will find emptiness. And what he's saying is this, look, don't, as we've said before, don't go for the pump fake in basketball terms. We live in this world where we're surrounded by this and it's just easy for us to think this is true. And he goes, it's not. It's futile to trust in riches and all that they promise. And yet, if you will admit it, when you look around, you may not say, I'm going to do all that or get all that. Inside of you, there is a part of you that is secretly coveting it. This uh, weekend... Uh, we got to go see one of my favorite musicals that a couple of our students were in. Wonderful, wonderful job with Fiddler on the Roof. But I haven't seen it in years, and I totally forgot about the scene if I were a rich man. I was like, oh, I got to find that. But just listen, listen. He says this. If you know Tevia, the scene, he's a very poor Jewish man. That like The whole world's always against him, and nothing ever goes his way. And the kid nailed it, by the way. But anyway, he says this, O oh Lord, you made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, it's no shame to be poor. So what would have been so terrible if I just had a small fortune? If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. I'd build a tall house with rooms by the dozen right in the middle of the town a fine tin roof with real wooden floors below. There would be one long staircase going up and one even longer coming down and one leading nowhere just for show. I'd fill my yard with chickens and turkeys and geese and ducks for the town to see and hear. And then he says, I'd see my wife Goldie looking like a rich man's wife. And I don't get this. Somebody explain it to me later. With a proper double chin. That must have meant you were 
large from eating, I guess. I don't know. But here's even more my favorite. And I think this gets at what this psalm gets at. Lord, who made the lion and the lamb, you decreed I should be what I am. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? Anybody feel that? If I just had a little bit more, if I could just get that place on the beach or that other thing, right? Let me just say it like this, and I know this, is, this feels like a lot of law right now. I don't, it's all over. There's like 15 verses of this, so we, that's the first point. Then we're moving on, right? But let me just say it like this. I've been in ministry almost 30 years, and I heard my buddy say this recently as well. I've had people confess to me all sorts of things. Adultery, a form of adultery, pornography, uh, murder, even in the realm of murder, uh, lying, stealing. I've had to confess stealing when I became a Christian. I don't know, I cannot remember one person that said, can I meet with you? I want to talk to you about greed or covetousness. We just have to let this psalm do its work, right? And expose that we do really struggle with all that surrounds us and feels like it's just barraging us because that's where we live. If we lived in a poorer country, we'd have the same struggle in a different way there, I'm sure. But this is where we live in the United States of America. I'll say it like this too. Someone called us this week about asking to meet with us. They want to go do missions work and they were talking about support. And my first response is, honey, we can't do anything else. Yes, maybe we can, but maybe something in our heart has to get untied from other things. Maybe I don't need that sick subscription. Anyone? Anyone? Look, we're buying into this. Let's move on to the hope of the gospel because that's not all this psalm says. It says, look, look further, look deeper, look wider, look higher, look bigger. Look at God and all that He promises. And remember, it's a promise when you don't have. That's really when a promise matters. If God says, Fritz, I'm going to give you, you know, 10,000 acres of great hunting land, and I have 5,000 acres, what's the big deal? But if I have nothing and he makes this promise, it means everything, doesn't it? It's a promise. And we see him, yes, asking good questions and, and a reminder to us that the promises are based in truth. Look at verse 7. Look what he says sort of to himself but to others. Truly no man can ransom himself for another. Then he goes through all those things that we looked at. He's saying... Look, your, your, your fears that arise, your emotions that arise, the, the sense of being surrounded, listen to truth. 
Hear what is true. Let the truth of God's Word set your heart and your mind straight. We don't say read the Bible here on a regular basis because it makes you right with God. God doesn't love you because of that. But we say read the Bible because it's going to show you the greatest need of your life has been met in the love of God. And will help you think straight about the world in which we live. Let the truth of God's Word speak to those fears and those emotions. And listen to the promises of God that He recites from the Word of God. He says that if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you're God's people, you have a future security. Look at verse 15. He says all of this and then He says, but God. Remember we said those are important words in the Bible. But God. Yet God, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Again, remember, Sheol was this ambiguous, sort of vague, gray, you, you were in the custody of death. It was Satan's domain. And yet, do you see what he says? This is in the Old Testament. We haven't even got to Jesus in the resurrection yet. But God will ransom. Notice other people in the world where you don't have God or the afterlife in Jesus and future and resurrection, the new heavens, the new earth that we talked about a few weeks ago, they've got to ransom their life now. And he says it won't suffice, but God will ransom us from the power of death. It's like he says that Sheol is personified. And has custody. You're in jail. And yet who pays the ransom? God. If you were kidnapped. Someone would, would be asked to pay a ransom. And it says you don't pay that. God pays that for you. To get you out of custody. Anybody ever been let out of jail before? Probably not kidnapped. Maybe. But probably some of you in this room like me have been in jail. And in my case, my dad went to the judge. And he humbled himself on my behalf. And you better believe when those doors opened, I came springing out with great joy because someone ransomed me from that custody. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that death used to have custody over us. It used to reign, but through the death of Jesus and His resurrection, life now begins. One man said it like this. God not only in the Old Testament hinted at His reigning over Sheol, Psalm 103, even if I go to Sheol, you are there. Psalm 86, great is your steadfast love. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. We saw that hinted at in the Old Testament. But the writer said this, God not only reigns over Sheol, God reigns by going into Sheol, going into Satan's bunker. And here's the best part. He breaks down the doors of hell from the inside. Isn't that awesome? Jesus, by dying, by being separated from God, 
and suffering God's wrath for us, the whole time through the power of the Spirit breaks open the doors from the inside. And goofy people like us that got in goofy trouble are free. He says you have that security because God pays it. See, every other religion says you pay it. The secularism of the world says you pay it. The Bible says God pays it. And secondly, the promise of your longing for what riches provide will be fulfilled. As Murray prayed earlier, earlier, the desires of your heart are not bad. You understand that? We, at least all sorts of sins, but God says we actually have good desires. And that desire for glory and praise that this guy gets in verses 16 through 18, and you know what it looks like. When the glory of his house, good job, great job, you're the man. We'll praise you. We'll never look at you and say, maybe you don't need that fourth house. We're on your side. Right? You get all of that glamour. And God says, you know what? That glory and praise that you desire and long for is not a bad thing. John chapter 5, verse 44. I quoted this a few months ago in my saddle writing. Jesus says this to the Pharisees. The Pharisees who were running after glory and honor. And he said this, how can you believe in me? I'm here. I'm the one that the Bible pointed to. How, how can you believe in me when you are so busy, this is my paraphrase, receiving glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? You see what he's saying? You do seek glory from everybody else. Christians, you are not averse to this. We want pats on the back. We're born with that desire for our daddy or mama to look at us and go, I love you, well done, good job. Dr. Anna Lemke, a professor of psychiatry at Stanford, found herself addicted to romance novels. And she wrote a book called Dopamine Nation. And she talks about the way endorphins work, especially with social media. And basically she says this, when you get a like, it gives you a shot of dopamine. It gives you a shot of glory. Does it work? No, because you just have to get more and more and more. And he's saying, we actually have that with God, that glory and that praise from God that is eternal. Listen how he says it in verse 15. Did you notice the thing I didn't read? God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. God will receive sinners. This is Luke 15-ish. When the prodigal comes back and the father opens his arms wide and receives him. Two applications. Number one, 
It takes faith to believe this, doesn't it? It takes faith to believe in God's promises when all of this stuff surrounds us and it gets at those longings and desires in our hearts for security and glory and praise and acceptance. It takes faith to believe this. I was reading recently the story of uh, David and Jonathan. And if you remember the context, Jonathan's dad is the king. He reigns over everybody, and boy, he wants glory and praise from people. If you read between the lines, he's always living in fear of people. But he rules. He's the king. He has the kingdom. And Jonathan knows that God is going to take the kingdom from him and give it to little old shepherd boy David, who is on the run, who is being persecuted, Who's, who's being threatened all the time by his dad and his kingdom. And, and Jonathan says, look, I know basically by faith that the kingdom is yours. It doesn't look like it. It doesn't seem like it. I'm believing the promises. Take my robe. Take my sword. I'm on your team. We have to live by faith. And secondly... I think the main application for us in many ways is, is what was alluded to earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17 through 18. Turn there if you would again. I just want to read this so that we hear it again. As for the rich in this present age, and notice there is money's not the problem, is it? Wealth is not the problem. It's value neutral, as Shanna said this week. The rich in the present age charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. But set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And we love that, we get that, we receive that by faith. Jesus became poor so that we can become rich. We all believe that mentally. We assent to that. But then he says the result of that is this. You are to do good and to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for yourself as a good foundation for the future that you may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you see that? In many ways, Jesus says it like this. Over and over and over, give it up. Give it away. That's what Jesus does for us. Let me pray. God, you have come to this world, you who have everything, and you have given it up for us, given up not only your position in heaven, but you're in, in many ways you were rejected and you were you your status was set aside, your glory, Lord, so that we may receive such benefits in Christ. God, we pray that you would overwhelm us with your love in such a way that we would be those who give freely, give generously. 
that our hope is not in this life and what it promises, but our hope and our trust is in you and what you promise, that we may truly have life. In Christ's name, amen.